ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The moment Esperance resident Libby Davis had to call on the Royal Flying Doctors was a memorable one. And as I was standing there watching her be loaded up, the basically the RFDS nurse just turned to me and said, how are you getting to Perth? Her two-week-old baby needs to be airlifted to a tertiary hospital in Perth, an eight-hour drive away. And there was no room for her in the tiny aircraft. So she got in the car, as we all would, and drove. Data shows the Royal Flying Doctor Service is flat out, with calls up almost 25% in five years. And its annual report predicts this pressure will not let up in the coming decade. Today on Australia Wide, we hear how the Royal Flying Doctors is propping up rural healthcare in many parts of Australia. I'm Sinead Mangan, coming to you from Wadjuk Country, Perth. But first, as we go to air, drenching rain and destructive winds are intensifying in far north Queensland as the region starts to feel the brunt of tropical cyclone Jasper. The system has strengthened to a Category 2 cyclone and is starting to make landfall. Residents have been busy preparing in recent days, moving boats and caravans, cleaning gutters and trying to tie down anything they can that could fly away. Farmers in the area have also been making last-minute preparations and are hoping Cyclone Jasper will not wreak too much havoc on their operations. Our reporter, Mackenzie Collihan, is in Port Douglas and he's been out in the rain this afternoon, but he's actually getting a bit dry right now. Mackenzie, you're, you're, it's nice and quiet where you are right now. If I spoke to you a little while ago, it wouldn't have been. Tell me what the conditions are like in Port Douglas. Yeah, I'm finally back in the safety of my hotel room. It's probably pretty quiet, but if I just open up the door of my balcony, you can you can yeah. hear how he- you can hear how heavy the rain is. And I'm actually on uh, the far side of our hotel, so I've got a, ho- a whole hotel's worth of protection from the wind. But it is really, really strong. We've been here for a couple of days now, and it feels like we've been here a week. It's kind of the suspense of waiting for the storm to really hit was uh, difficult to deal with. I, I think it was moving so slowly, this the cyclone, that people had almost too much time to prepare. Everyone was ready, you know, t- 24, 48 hours in advance. And then it was just the waiting game. But it really hit this afternoon. And, yeah, it, it, it was a lot. It, it was scary. There was, um, you know, a lot of trees down over the road. I was driving uh, that Cairns Bureau's brand new uh, Land Cruiser, which had about uh, 50 Ks on the clock. So I was very, <laughs> very nervous of a tree falling down on that, I think. Um, but yeah, finally back in the safety of the hotel room. And I think we're going to be hunkered down here for you know the foreseeable future. So Mackenzie, obviously you're seeing the impact of Jasper now as it, as it crosses the coast. Tell me, looking, sticking your head out that window, despite the hotel, what can you see? Uh, a lot of a lot of palm trees bending around and a lot of rain. I think the biggest concern this morning when we were out and about on the beach was uh, there's king tides at the moment and the storm surge uh, on that massive high tide we had this morning. There was a bit of uh, fear that uh, the water would rush and kind of inundate some of the ground floors of the beachfront hotels. Uh, thankfully, though, because the system is going to was kind of delayed, the the time it was supposed to make landfall kept getting pushed back and back and back by the bureau. When we arrived uh, in Cairns the other day, it was forecast to hit overnight um, on Tuesday, and then it was Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, and now it's kind of going to be this evening. And so, thankfully, um, that 
king tide didn't coincide with when it made landfall. And so even though uh, the waves were really, really rough and wild and were kind of gouging away the dunes and kind of lapping up at the dunes, it didn't quite make it across the road. But I think the real concern now will be all of this heavy rain, which is expected to hang around for the next uh, day or two. And they're, they're predicting maybe half a metre of rain could fall in the next 24 hours. Have people chosen to stay in Port Douglas to ride at the storm or have some people left town? Well, it's really a tourist town, so it's quite funny. It's very eerie. It's, this is the first week of school holidays here in Queensland and usually uh, this time of year. Um, the town would be pumping, but we're staying in a big resort just on the main road into town. And I think there's 10 people staying in the resort and the the whole resort in the whole resort, the town itself, the the town itself is like a ghost town. It's really eerie. There's pretty much just the locals and a couple of uh, brave tourists uh, who, you know, hung around, but uh, for the most part, yeah, there's not many, very many people here. So it, it's a little bit of a, an eerie feeling just kind of cruising the streets, not seeing any other many other cars at all, barely seeing many people. It makes it very hard for interviewing, I'd imagine. <laughs> well, we did we did find a real character today at the marina. Uh, the harbour master had ordered that, that all boats uh, clear the marina, and they've gone uh, a few kilometres upstream and, and anchored themselves in the estuary and kind of uh, tied themselves off on the mangrove so they don't get blown away. Uh, but we went down there today. There were two boats remaining. One uh, was an old, old, old houseboat with a former Hollywood stunt woman uh, called Tiffany, who her houseboat's no longer seaworthy, so it can't be moved, and she was uh, sitting. On the back deck of her houseboat, she had a jacuzzi, she had her binoculars, <laughs> and she had an espresso, espresso martini, and she was going to be riding up the storm from her houseboat. So uh, brave or stupid, I'm not sure which one is which, but um, yeah, I wonder how she's doing this afternoon. So I'd ima- So, what are the main concerns with this system? You've mentioned flooding, obviously, is a concern. The amount of rain that's going to be dumped because of Cyclone Jasper. What about the situation with electricity? How's that going? Well, I have a feeling that we, the hotel's generators just kicked in because I was kind of watching the news before for my hotel room. We lost power momentarily. We lost the Wi-Fi. The lights have come back on. The Wi-Fi hasn't. So I think our hotel may have lost power and their emergency backup generators kicked in. Yeah, I think power will be a concern. I think the flash flooding from all the rain is going to be a real concern. A lot of the communities in the Daintree just north of us, which are right in the impact zone, might be cut off um, because the roads, um, you know, maybe um, creeks kind of rising and trees down over the roads. We were driving as far north as we could today out of Port Douglas um, and the roads were in pretty good nick, um, but I dare say that that will have changed by now. Mackenzie Collihan in Port Douglas, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. Thank you so much. ABC Australia Wide. A warning for our listeners, this next story does discuss sexual assault. In the 1980s, Ethan was sent to a well-known boarding school in northern New South Wales. He says he was a pretty popular kid, but he is haunted by the abuse he alleges he suffered there. And he says the process of seeking compensation has created its own kind of trauma. He's speaking out because he wants to inspire other victims to come forward and a more compassionate approach to civil cases. Emma Rennie met him and his wife to hear their story. As we greet each other for the first time, Ethan is warm and witty. He tells me of a happy childhood many decades earlier, one where he was an outgoing and confident child. I was very sporty. I was always in the school plays and involved in anything that could happen. 
In the 1980s, his parents were heading overseas for his father's work, so they enrolled Ethan in the Armadale School, or TAS, a reputable boarding school. The ABC agreed to hide the real names and voices of Ethan and his wife Lisa to protect their family's privacy, because Ethan says what happened in the following years changed the trajectory of his life. Ethan alleges he was abused by three different men between the ages of 14 and 16 while he was a student at TAS, two staff members and a community member who held a position of authority. It took me by surprise because... It was kind of a coded thing and a bit of a joke. I mean, any... There were a few teachers that were consistently named. The joke is like, they are, he's patrolling the grounds again, you know, don't try and sneak out tonight, you know, whatever. And we did, we used to just make jokes about it. But, you know, it was always, the thought was always that it happened to someone else. And it was because there was something wrong with them or they were a bit soft or whatever. Um... You know, so you never thought it would happen to you. Documents submitted to the New South Wales Supreme Court as part of civil proceedings against Taz outline Ethan's allegations. He says the abuse often occurred away from the eyes of other students and teachers and left him a changed young man. You just start shutting down. If you make less noise, if you're less obvious, if you're less beautiful to them, in whatever sick way they see it. You just hope that they'll go to someone else. Ethan and Lisa want the school to acknowledge it failed in its duty of care. They're working with Lauren Domian, a senior solicitor at Shine Lawyers, to pursue a compensation claim, but she says it's been a challenging process. We've been met with nothing but delay tactics, non-communication and arduous litigation from the defendant. We had notified them back in 2021 of bringing the claim. We had no meaningful response and were forced to commence proceedings in the Supreme Court. It took six months for them to even admit they were the proper defendant. At the moment, they haven't given any indication as to whether they admit or deny liability. Those sort of issues would be ventilated at the mediation. The parties are due to participate in mediation tomorrow. The couple say Ethan's history has taken a toll on his mental health that their entire family has struggled with. I just withdrew and to be completely honest and quite frank it became part of me and uh, if you talk to my wife, if you talk to my kids, I withdraw, I isolate and I go through cycles of anxiety and depression that are pretty extreme. I've stuck with him because he is a good man and I love him, but it has been hard to be the glue. Like it's just really hard. Detailing the abuse Ethan says he suffered as part of the legal process has increased the burden. Since I've let that out, it haunts me almost nightly. Last two or three weeks, I've woken every second night at least with that dream. Screaming. And she knows, she lies next to me and she hears it. And I feel like I have to wake him, I have to quickly wake him, like I need to save him right there, right then. So it's not something that happened 40 years ago, it's something that happened last night. It's why their lawyer believes there needs to be an improved trauma-informed approach to compensation claims. Civil litigation in the abuse space is extremely, extremely re-traumatising. Not only do they have to sort of rehash out the 
the specifics of the abuse to the lawyers, but they also have to go through arduous, you know, medical examinations and cross-examinations. The defendant solicitors have an obligation to represent their client and defend the claim as best as possible. But I mean, that doesn't mean that they can't keep the lines of communication open um, and try not to delay or stall the matter, trying to sort of defend it and push it along as expeditiously as possible would help a lot. An improved legal system was part of the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. In 2015, the commissioners recommended both government and non-government institutions establish guidelines for a response to civil claims, which were designed to minimise potential re-traumatisation of claimants and to avoid unnecessarily adversarial responses to claims. The National Redress Scheme began operating in 2018 and the Armidale School signed up by July 2019. When approached by the ABC for comment for this story, Taz provided a brief statement. While proceedings continue, it is not appropriate for the school to comment further on this matter. We remain steadfast in our commitment to supporting victims of historical injustices and continue to encourage former students to contact the school. Ethan is firmly of the belief that there are many other survivors who attended TAS and who have not yet come forward. If there's anyone out there in pain, anyone who's been through what I've been through, they need to be able to be heard and they need their voice out there and it's got to stop happening. And the only way it can stop happening is if enough people say it's not okay. In the meantime, Ethan and Lisa are hoping his compensation claim brings them a type of justice and something approaching a normal life. I want them to admit that it happened. I want them to admit that that was the type of place that it was. And I want that to affect how places like that and how they operate. just want to be happy and to experience my kids and to experience my grandkids and to be able to give to them, to be there for them. That's, that's all I want. If this story has raised issues for you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or the 1800 Respect National Helpline on 1800 737 732. The Royal Flying Doctor Service has saved countless lives throughout Australia, but it can be distressing for patients forced to fly far from home to access care and it is expensive for taxpayers. The number of aeromedical retrievals flown by the RFDS has been increasing in recent years. Advocates say that highlights the need to improve access to primary health care in regional and remote Australia. Emily Smith has a story from Esperance in WA. In mid-October, everyone in Libby Davies' household had a cold. But when her newborn, Ellie Bates, developed a cough so bad she turned blue, she rushed her to hospital. After three days, the decision was eventually made to call the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And as I was standing there watching her be loaded up, basically the RFDS nurse just turned to me and said, how are you getting to Perth? And it uh, became very apparent that I was not going with my two-week-old baby all that way. (laughs) How did you react? I just didn't believe that they could do that. I was like, but I'm feeding her. Like, Who's going to feed her? Who's going to settle her when she needs settling? Like, I just, I think I went really numb. Yeah. Yeah, So can you explain what what happened when you learnt that you couldn't get on the flight? 
it just became apparent very quickly that all I could do was jump in my car and start driving. There was no Rex flights till the next afternoon. There was no other way. I just how, had to how far drive. is it to Perth? Um, it's about seven hundred and fifty-ish kilometres, I think. Yeah, so yeah, about seven, seven to eight hours. And yep. what time of day was it when you were doing this drive? Uh, so I left at four p.m. Um, so most of the drive was at night. Yeah, and I think we got there at about eleven thirty. Emotions were very high. Do you I think was, it was safe for you to be absolutely driving? not. Um, I mean, for my instance, yes, because I had my partner with me. We were together. We were able to leave our toddler with her grandparents, so it was just the two of us. We were undistracted. But in another instance, you know, a hysterical mother jumping in her car with potentially a toddler to drive seven hours incredibly unsafe. An RFDS spokesperson says the medical team took up all three seats on the aircraft, but it's planning to add a fourth seat for a parent in the near future. They say they regret that these arrangements were not communicated to Ms Davey ahead of time and it's reviewing how to improve going forward. Ms Davey was reunited with Ellie at the Perth Hospital and the baby has now recovered. But it was a traumatic experience and she wonders whether it could have been avoided if there were more resources locally. Even just to get a doctor's appointment, it is outrageous. Um, and the fact that we're constantly having to show up to emergency department with these babies and then potentially just being flown to Perth. We must be wasting so many resources flying these people out when they could be in their own home. The Royal Flying Doctor Service is revered across country Australia for the countless lives it's saved. But data shows it's relied upon more and more. In 2021-22, it flew more than 45,000 aeromedical retrievals, a 23% increase compared to five years prior. My name is Frank Quinlan and I'm the Federation Executive Director of the Royal Flying Doctor Service. He said the increase was partly because the pandemic restricted many people access to primary care, which meant illnesses were left to progress until people really needed urgent help. But it also, I think, does beg the question about whether we're ultimately spending enough on uh, the sorts of supports and the sorts of services that rural and remote Australians need. What, what we know at the moment is that people in those uh, remote and uh, rural locations uh, get sicker than their city counterparts, uh, they die earlier than their, their city counterparts, and that a lot of that uh, death and uh, in illness is avoidable if we were able to get better um, primary health care to people. My name is Dr. R.T. Lewandowski, and I'm the president of the Rural Doctors Association of Australia. He says the increase in RFDS flight numbers is linked to healthcare access in rural Australia. There is inadequate um, access to care close to home in rural areas. And the, the cost of that to, to communities is huge. But the dollar cost to us as taxpayers and to the Australian government is also huge and, and will continue to grow if something's not done about it. Dr Michael Livingston is a rural generalist who works across clinics in Western Australia's Midwest and Great Southern. He says the cost of treating, say, a wound locally was tens of thousands of dollars cheaper than an aeromedical evacuation. You know, the patient that has to be transferred to the strip, um, I've seen that at Ravenstop, a uh, 30-kilometre trip is $480, $450 to $480 just for that trip with St John's. And then we've got the price of the flight, which, you know, I've had quotes between twenty dollars to $30,000 for that one-way trip. 
to get to the ED, to be seen in the ED and triaged there, which is several hundred dollars, and then eventually, you know, have it have the wound care nursing staff another couple of dollars admitted to a surgical ward, a couple of thousand dollars, then maybe even go to theatre and have it closed. Uh, again, another couple of things. So you're, you're probably talking, you know, fifty thousand plus for this same, same wound. He believes getting more rural generalists, which are GPs with specialised skills for rural settings, would help. But he believes the profession is undervalued and struggles to attract the government and community support necessary to attract people into the field and keep them there. And the more that we don't see support, the more that we don't get acknowledged in our roles in this, the more more and more of us will step away, um, which will mean that you're already going to put more pressure on the system. Um, and that requires that the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Dr Michael Livingston ending that story there from Emily Smith. A Federal Department of Health and Aged Care spokesperson said there was a number of initiatives to tackle the issues in rural health, including expanding an employment pathway for junior doctors who wanted to be rural generalists. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. New mothers are strongly encouraged to breastfeed after giving birth, but it's something many women struggle with. For Indigenous women, breastfeeding rates are far lower than the rest of the community. So a local Aboriginal health centre from southern New South Wales is looking to change that by offering more culturally sensitive support. Shona Foley has more on the story. Hello, Hey, I have a twin colours look in the middle. That's so Childcare worker Kayla Price's experience of breastfeeding her newborn son will be familiar to many mothers. I had given birth to my son and I told my midwife that I wanted to breastfeed um, and there was no support given. I remember having my son and putting him on the breast myself I didn't know if he was latched correctly. I remember the midwives coming in. Yeah, yeah, looks great. He's latched, just keep doing, doing a great job. Um, I was sent home the next day, still thinking I'm doing great, feeding my son. A few days later, he was never latched properly. I was in a lot of pain, I was crying. And at that point, my son was hungry. It was so easy for me to go and just get a formula tin to feed my son because I didn't know where the supports were, who to ring or who to turn to, which was really disheartening because I feel things could have been different if I knew what I knew now and the supports that were there. Research suggests First Nations mothers like Kayla are finding it more challenging than most. Less than 70% of Indigenous mothers start breastfeeding their babies, compared with 96% of non-Indigenous mothers. At three months, 19% of Indigenous infants are still breastfed. It's around 50% for other babies. I think that life has changed a lot. Traditionally, it was the only way to go. We had no bottles. We had none of these other formulas and stuff like that. We had one way of feeding and that was through the breast. Wiradjuri elder Donna Kirby supports mothers at the local Aboriginal Health Centre in Wagga Wagga. She suspects a number of factors are involved. The impact of children being taken away and not knowing how to have that connection with their children and not having that connection with their mum. Um, The removal of children have really 
impacted on breastfeeding and keeping our kids safe and healthy and respected. The local Aboriginal Health Centre is developing a 12-month pilot program here in Wagga Wagga. It'll have a focus on creating more culturally sensitive spaces and hiring more Indigenous midwives and lactation consultants. I'm Simone Sheriff and I'm a board of director and also a research fellow at the University of Sydney. This project was developed out of um, yeah, speaking with local women here um, working at RIFMED um, and so we felt you know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women have been um, yeah, nurturing and sustaining our children for over 65,000 years through breastfeeding and so due to colonisation and the ongoing impacts of that, that's disrupted breastfeeding practices along with a lot of other things in Australia. And so we wanted to be able to, um, we know that there's a lot of women in the community that have challenges with breastfeeding and so the breastfeeding rate are lower in the community and so we wanted to be able to design a program that was designed around local Aboriginal women's needs um, for breastfeeding and support and so that's kind of how, yeah, we came to this idea. Simone Sheriff ending that story from Shona Foley. And that is Australia-wide for this Wednesday. I'm Sinead Bangan. I'll speak to you again tomorrow. ABC Listen.